May the Lord bless the, the teaching of his word today and may it bear fruit for his name's sake. So we'll start in verse 24. So Colossians 1, 24. And we're actually just starting in the first half of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That I wish I didn't have because I feel like I'm the least of us here today that can speak uh, from that perspective. Um, the fact of the matter is I just don't suffer well. <laughs> I don't suffer well at all. I don't like it. I'm really terrible at suffering. My wife can probably amen that. But I, I just... I'm not good at it. And if I'm honest, I don't want to be good at it. I, I, I don't like it. I hate suffering. It's not fun. But we are called to be a people that rejoice in suffering. And, you know, regardless of what that looks like, I mean, the, we're here. And so I'm talking about it. We probably won't talk about it much since I'm not good at it. But um, it's just so mind blowing to me, though, that we are called to rejoice in suffering. It seems so counterintuitive, and it is counterintuitive. Our flesh does not want to rejoice in suffering. But as Paul says here, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's talking to the church there. We are called to be able to rejoice. Now, there are many ways that we suffer in this world. So, I do want us to take a quick look at some of the differences in suffering because I don't want you to confuse all suffering as being able to rejoice in. And I want you to get that. There is a difference in sufferings. So I want us to be clear there, or at least look at it to some degree. I want you to see that there's a difference between enjoying suffering and being able to rejoice when you suffer. You hear what I'm saying there? The difference between enjoying suffering and being able to rejoice when you suffer. It may sound strange to some of you, but others here will know exactly what I'm talking about. There are those who actually aren't happy unless there is some type of suffering in their life. They look for it. They even seem to thrive in it. And that's not rejoicing in suffering. As strange as it sounds, it's actually enjoying suffering in a sense, which is weird. But it, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but it's real, people. Um, people who struggle with this, I would say their, ten, uh, their tendency is narcissistic. They're, they're me monsters. They're looking to utilize that suffering to capitalize on it, to manipulate others for their purposes. And so if you know someone like that, I just want to encourage you to earnestly seek the Lord on their behalf, for the Lord to remove the scales from their eyes to see that the Lord is their portion and the Lord is their source of joy, not the suffering that they look to uh, manipulate. There is also a suffering for wrongdoing, and that is not what is being referred to here either, a suffering for wrongdoing. We will suffer consequences for our sinful actions, and that is no reason to rejoice. OK, and, you know, if you're if you're uh, if you're getting pulled over because you're going, you know, over the speed limit, that's not a reason to you're not suffering for Christ's sake there. You broke the law. You are suffering the consequences of that breaking the law. So that's that's not what he's talking about. Uh, we will suffer consequences for our sin, uh, sinful actions. Um, <clears throat> it is a reason, though, to repent and use those sufferings that we get when we do wrong to push us toward Jesus 
even more, more than ever, harder towards Jesus because he is faithful and just to forgive us. Amen. All right. And finally, uh, as we're kind of looking through this, because I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but Paul was not referring to suffering for suffering's sake. So here's another big one that I wanted to highlight. Um, there is a mindset that can actually idolize suffering. So that's different than enjoying suffering that I talked about while I go, but idolize suffering uh, in the form of asceticism. Asceticism is just a fancy word. It, it means like you abuse your flesh or you deny your flesh certain things. And in doing so, you think that makes you more spiritual or you think it, you think it moves you closer to God or, or God will listen to me if I do these things like this. It's like a, it's like you're, you're saying if I, if I deny myself of these things, then God will move on my behalf. If I deny myself on these things, then I'll be seen as super spiritual. Colossians actually addresses this one, which I think is awesome. We'll get to it again uh, later on. But Colossians 2.23 says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So you understand, those, those who idolize suffering can have an appearance of wisdom and spirituality. That's why, a lot of the reason why they're doing it. But appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. There's that word. Remember, it's just fancy for, you know, making your body suffer and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, doing it for, for suffering sake, suffering for suffering sake is not what we're called to do. And that's not uh, a, a reason to rejoice. So what type of sufferings are there to rejoice in? So we've, we've kind of looked at a few, what aren't, you know, what isn't he talking about, but let's look at what he is talking about in some aspects. We should, uh, you know, rejoice in our sufferings. And we're going to look at a few scriptures here. So again, if you want to just take notes, I'll read them. Um, I may give you a second to get to them, but you could just write the references down. But sufferings to rejoice, <clears throat> uh, we are called to rejoice when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. And one of the verses that kind of tells us this is Matthew 5, Verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read those. This is Matthew 5, 10 through 12. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, um, so we are to rejoice. Jesus tells us directly, we are blessed. It, it, is, uh, it is a good thing when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. So that is a, that is a good reason to rejoice in suffering. One of the reasons we should rejoice in this type of suffering is that it produces an endurance or steadfastness within us, according to Romans 5.3. So Romans 5.3, I'm going to read that as well. Romans 5, 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance or that same Greek word that's used there for endurance. It's a, it's called hypomene, hypomene. It's also translated as steadfastness in James chapter one. So also write down 
James 1, verses 2 and 3. And I'll read that for you. James 1, verses 2 and 3. Also says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So steadfastness, endurance, is that same Greek word. But suffering for, for righteousness sake, actually breeds within us a steadfastness, a, a firmness, a, uh, you know, we, we kind of plant our feet and we can rejoice that he's building that within us, knowing that, you know, there is, I always think of it like compromise, uh, you know, it keeps us from that compromise. When we suffer and we endure and we build that and Jesus builds that steadfastness in us, that kind of plants our feet firm on the rock of Jesus and we get, you know, we get stronger. We really do. So, and that's what it's talking about. You're going to build that endurance. You're going to be able to endure. So, um, it can also be a type of blessing. So, suffering for righteousness' sake can be a type of blessing in confirming that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and that just as we share in Christ's suffering, it also is a blessing because it sh- it tells us, hey, if we're suffering for Christ's sake, we are also going to rejoice in Christ, and we are also going to be blessed in Christ. And first Peter four verses 12 through 14 tell us this. So we're going to look at that first Peter four, 12 through 14 it says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. See, counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense, but it's truth. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And finishing it up here, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow. So that is kind of the venue. That's the vein. That's what we're talking about. When you rejoice in suffering, it's still going to hurt. You're still going to want it to let up. You're still going to cry out to God. Help, please. I don't like this. I don't want this. But you're not going to let it dictate how you act. You're not going to let it dictate how you respond. In that suffering, for righteousness sake, the Holy Spirit brings a joy and a peace and a confidence and that steadfastness and that endurance he builds in you so that you can stand firm on Jesus and shine his light. It's, 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 It's what we're called to do. We don't let it dictate what we do. Our hope and our trust is in Jesus alone. When we are suffering for his ways and his glory, it is going to ultimately be for our good. That's another thing we have to realize and understand. It may hurt in the moment, but it's going to be for our good. When we're walking in God's will, God's way, I can promise you persecution will come. Thankfully, in our country, we don't see it like we like some other countries see it. We don't see it as the early church saw it so brutal, um, but it's there. It exists today. And, you know, we should be very grateful that we don't see the persecution as much as we, I'm a, I'm a sound guy, so sorry about that. Um, uh, but it just threw me off. Uh, squirrel. All right. Persecution will come, but we should rejoice in our suffering when we are being persecuted for Jesus' sake. Amen.
All right, so moving on to just the second half of verse 24. I promise you don't go and go this slow through every single line. But the, the last half of uh, Colossians 1.24 says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, this one is a really wacky one. You read that and you're like, what? Paul, what are you saying? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? So let me, uh, that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this as well, because this is, this is something that could really make your kind of head spin a little bit when you read that and go, what is, what are you talking about, Paul? So this filling up what is lacking, it's not referring to a deficiency in Jesus's work. Uh, that's, I mean, you know, that's kind of one of the things my mind goes to when I'm, when I read that, you know, and just, and go, are you saying Christ is not enough? What are you saying, Paul? That's not what he's saying here. And, and it's easily to, it's easily proven, um, because Jesus is suffering and death on the cross. It wasn't some kind of starting point. And now we've got to add to it to make it effective and really work. And Hey, if we don't do our part, oh, I'm getting out of the camera. If we don't do our part, then you know, it's not going to be effective. Jesus's work is not going to work. That's not what it's talking about. No, we don't have to do anything. Jesus's work was complete. And, and one of the main and most obvious ways we know this is by looking at the whole council of scripture. So you can look at that one little line and go, what, what, what do we have to do to complete Christ's affliction? Or you can look at the whole of scripture and that's what we're called to do. And that's what we're going to do uh, a little bit here because I felt like this was important enough to really spend a little bit of time on. So um, we're looking at the, the whole of Scripture, and, and for time's sake, we're just going to look at a few verses, but Romans 6.10, so write that one down, Romans 6.10. He says, for the death he died, speaking of Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Or Hebrews 10.10. Make sure you write that one down too. Hebrews 10.10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. This once for all phrase is used several times. If you just even do like a search uh, once for all, it's used several times in the New Testament. It's used to describe the completeness of Jesus's work, the completeness and fullness of Jesus's sacrifice. So, those are just a few that I threw in there to, to kind of give you that idea. But let's look at Hebrews 7.25 too. Hebrews 7 verse 25. It says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uttermost here. It means you cannot be fuller. You cannot be more complete. Jesus has completely and perfectly saved us through his death, burial, and resurrection. He is all sufficient in our salvation. Amen and hallelujah. So let's clear that out of the way as we're looking at that verse. So what Paul is referring to when he says that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, I believe what he is referring to here is kind of like a time-bound gospel work sense, and don't even write that down because that just doesn't even make sense, even as I say it out loud. But a time-bound gospel work sense is how it's how I see it. Hopefully, I can explain what I mean here. Um, there, all right, there's a fullness 
to what Christ has done from eternity to eternity. As we look at Hebrews 4.3. So Hebrews 4.3. For we have believed, for we who have believed entered enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So you understand we're kind of, uh, you know, stay with me here. Jesus suffered and died on the cross at a single point in time. His, that work was complete. So we have that completed work of his in a temporal sense. So that happened at a point in time. But there's also an eternal sense to it and its effect. It's, it's working. So as we see Jesus's work was finished from the foundation of the world. So even from that point of time, it was already finished. You see what I'm getting at here? Um, so we, we, we see this eternal yet temporal perspective, an eternal yet temporal perspective. And we see it, hopefully we can get a little clearer here. First Peter 1.20. So First Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So in that sense, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is the fulfillment or the fruit of what is accomplished in time. So Paul has things he's accomplishing in Christ's power, and that, in essence, is, is, is the effect or fruit of Christ's afflictions. That's It's filling it. It's almost like, instead of filling, almost look at it like fulfilling the work, the fruit of Christ's afflictions. So from a, from a temporal point to the eternal point. So, all right, let's look at a few more verses to hopefully, hopefully it'll really even come clearer here. Um, the fruit of what is accomplished in time, Luke 21, 24. I'm telling you, I hope this blows your mind like it blew mine. Uh, Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So it's happening, it's going to happen, and there is a fulfillment of it happening. And then Romans eleven twenty five, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Keep your finger on that word. Circle that word, mystery, uh, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what I submit to you is that Paul's filling up what is lacking is speaking from a fullness of the Gentiles coming to salvation. And so his work in helping that come to pass is what he's talking about, filling up fullness of the Gentiles coming to salvation in Christ over time until Jesus returns because Christ will not return. We can see that from the scriptures we've, we've looked at. Christ will not return until the full number of Gentiles have been saved. That is a mystery. It is a mystery. Even Paul calls it out. So let's look at second Corinthians four seventeen verses 18. That'll kind of get us, um, uh, It'll kind of sum up just a little bit what we're talking about, but then it's a great segue into the rest of the verses that we're going to. So 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, the temporal, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal. I keep using that word temporal, but that's kind of the same thing, transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So this next section, I really, I know we've spent a lot of time just in that verse, but this, these next few verses is what I really want us to zero in on too. I, I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants to uh, really take us to a, a, a realization today that at least for me, it blew my mind, like I said, and, and I hope that it will um, just supercharge your affection for Jesus as we see what's happening here in the rest of these next few verses. So this next section, I just really want to emphasize, and I pray that the Holy Spirit really brings to life the riches that are in this, the truths that are here. I want you to understand something, that this list, this was written specifically for us. It was written specifically for us. And I know, I know you're thinking, well, of course, it's part of the Bible. I'm pretty sure the whole thing is written for us. You know, all that kind of good stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. You'd be right. I mean, that is not going to argue that. But what I mean is that this is written specifically for Gentiles, for us as Gentiles. And we don't think about that. We don't think about ourselves in that sense. I realize that. But that's who we are. Unless you're a Messianic Jew, which high five to you. That's awesome. Um, but, uh, but most of us, I will say it that way, are Gentiles in here. And so that's what's really, really amazing is that this is written specifically for us. We don't fully appreciate now what this really meant to the church of Colossae then. We, there's a part of that just because of the cultural thing we can't grasp. And that's okay. We're not supposed to grasp that part of it, but I'm telling you, they grasped it. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's no doubt they grasped it, and it's amazing. But let's try and see their perspective just a little bit more. There was a clear line of differentiation between the Jew and the Gentile. That And, and look, the church is already being birthed and growing, and it's going in different places. This is the church at Colossae. There was a church at Ephesus. There was a church at Laodicea, you know. The church is growing and going here. So this isn't like pre-Jesus. There was a, a line that still existed even in that day, a clear line between Jew and Gentile. And it was still very present even in this time when this letter was written. So much so that Paul even had to openly rebuke Peter. Um, if you haven't read those stories, I mean, like it's it's pretty wild. Peter calls, uh, Paul calls out Peter for like, shunning uh, Gentile believers when his Jewish brothers show up. He's all fellowshipping and having a good time and eating with them and stuff like that. And then his Jewish brothers show up and he goes, you know, he kind of goes over here and is like, yes, I am a Jew. Yes, thank you. And and he kind of pulls away from him. Paul openly calls him out and says, hey, what are you doing? You're causing these Gentile brothers to stumble because of your actions. Now they think, oh, they've got to act like a Jew because Peter, remember, Jesus said, Peter, uh, you know, I'm calling you Peter because on this rock, that's what Peter means. I'm, on this rock, I will build my church. So, I mean, we're not talking about just some Yahoo. We're talking about Peter here who even had to be called out. <clears throat> and it's called out in the scriptures, which I think is pretty funny. Um, so we see this. Even after Peter saw the Holy Spirit fall on Gentile believers, you understand this whole thing happened 
even after that, Peter actually was shown in a vision and called to go to Caesarea, uh, Cornelius, to the house of Cornelius, and, and says, hey, go and preach the gospel to him. And, and Peter's mind was blown there because the Holy Spirit fell on them. They were baptized. They were saved. And, and, and they were Gentiles. And he was blown away. And he was like, hey, this is great. This is exciting. He even goes back and tells his Jewish brothers like, hey, isn't this great? Brothers and sisters, you know, what the Lord did over there. But even then, it just didn't compute. There was still that, that line of differentiation because it was after that event that he had to be called out. So, salvation for Gentiles was still kind of a secondary situation. Like the the Jews, uh, you know, the 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 Jews would still have that sense of. I don't, I don't want to oversell it because I don't know. So don't 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 take too much of, of what I'm trying to say, but there, there was such a line that there was still this kind of second class citizen. That's how I'm going to say it. Um, that's how I'm going to say it. I mean, obviously I don't know how they would explain it, but, but a second class citizen, yeah, you're saved, but you're a Gentile. We're Jews, you know, kind of thing. So there was still that air there that was having to get over. Um, so, um, uh, I want us to get and grasp the fact that we are the Gentiles. We, you and I, we are the Gentiles. And so Paul's getting ready to share some really amazing news with us. He's picking back up in verse 25. So verse 25, he says, of which, so he's he's talking to them, you know, hey, I've, I've become a minister, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Now, this is this is where it gets uh, you know pretty pretty awesome. Paul lays out his calling and commissioning from the Lord specifically to the Colossians. This had to be an encouragement to them because guess what? He'd never met them. He'd never been to the church of Colossae. So it it would it, you know he spent two years in Ephesus. So it's not out of the realm of possibility and. I guess it could be probability that some brothers uh, from Ephesus who were under Paul went to Colossae to plant the church or to at least work with the, alongside the believers in the church and grow the church. So there could have been that kind of connection. But at this point, Paul had never gone to Colossae. But what I want to make sure we see is the faithfulness of God to keep and to shepherd and to love his people. Because even though Paul never been to Colossae, the Lord called and commissioned. I mean, like that's a strong, he said, he said, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And that you is you people at Colossae. He he was called to make the word of God fully known. And he was faithfully walking out that calling by writing this letter to him, to them. So he wrote this letter to them to fulfill that calling that God had for him. And he writes to them as if he'd always been there among them. That's what, I mean, like if you read this letter, that should shock you. As you read through Colossians, you go, Oh, Paul didn't even really know these people. That's weird. He'd never seen them. He'd never been there. That's odd. Cause he sure does talk as if, you know, their family even, um, you know, he writes to them as if he'd always been there among them. He shows no deference in love and care for them 
just because he had not seen them face to face. And that is awesome. They were family regardless. And, and those he knew that knew them were just as good. So like, yeah, I'm sure there were people there at Ephesus who knew people at the church of Colossae, but that was good enough. They were family regardless. And those he knew uh, that knew them, that was fine. He didn't have to know them personally himself. I want you to see how that ties back into uh, what we talked about in our last series about Jesus being the vine, Jesus being the vine. And from our previous series, we talked about that community and that fellowship. It should always be Jesus. So that's that's how Paul could write such a letter to Colossae as if he was right there with him and been with him the whole time is that the connection was Jesus it cannot be a health, there cannot be a healthier, stronger, or more intimate connection in fellowship than when it is in Christ. We are called to be in Christ. I'll give you a quick example. Is um, In my younger years, I went to uh, Morocco on a mission trip. And in traveling, I had to travel through Spain. And in traveling through Spain, I bumped into another Muslim. Didn't know who he was. It was kind of weird. Um, but we kind of, it was just, I would go here and he'd be there. I would go there and he'd be there. And so I started talking to him and he, and then he was like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? And I just told him I was being very honest and open. He was like, Oh, okay. And he's like, well, you know, travel with me. And I was like, okay, sure. And so we get to a spot where it, you go down to Spain and then you have to cross over into Africa over a uh, ferry. Uh, and, so we had to go and spend the night and then take the ferry the next morning. So we go and we're walking and I'm just kind of following him. I'm still like, I literally, I don't know him other than have just met him. We've been traveling on a bus together. And so I'm just following him. He's, and he's just like walking, just doom, 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 doom. we're there and he's walking and he goes and, and we kind of go down this back alley. And so I'm kind of walking a little slower, but I'm walking still and I'm with him. And we get in and we go into this hotel, like in this back alley. And uh, he walks in and, I mean, just embraces the guy behind the counter. You know, they they kiss. It was nothing effeminate about it. Like kiss cheek. Like, but I'm not talking about like a movie star. Like, like I'm talking about they they really kissed the cheeks of each other and just embraced. And, you know, da 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 da. And they talk for a minute. And um, and then it's like, okay, cool. You've got a room. I've got a room. And, you know, it's this much money. And I was like, wow, that's a great price. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, so how do you know this guy? And he goes, I don't know him. And I'm like, what? He goes, no, I don't. I I mean, I just met him. And I'm like, what in the world? But it was a Muslim brother. And that's where they identified. So it didn't matter that they'd never met each other. They embraced each other. And it it was actually very kind of shocking to me. I was like, you don't know that guy? Uh, bro, you just hugged and kissed him. Uh, but anyway, uh, but let's get back on track here in Colossians. But I mean, that's, I, I wanted to use that example to show you how our connectivity to Christ as the true vine, that's where we find our connection. And we can't have a stronger connection. We can't have a better friendship. We can't have a better relationship than as family through the vine. Amen. All right, back on track. And the great news, Paul is going on to tell them some specifics of the word he is making fully known to them in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this is a big deal. 
He's hyping this mystery up to the nth degree. I mean, you know, like when your friends hype up a movie to you so much. He's not here, but like Jason Smith, uh, that you're afraid to watch it because it cannot meet the expectations you have for it now because it's been built up so much in your mind. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. I mean, that's that's he is. I mean, he's hyping this thing up. Like, can you can you imagine a bigger hype mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed? And I'm about to tell you what it is like. That's hype. That's big. It's a big deal. That's what Paul is doing here. He's hyping it up and he's intentionally hyping it up because there's no way it's going to be a letdown. That's the beauty of it. There's no way this is going to be like a, oh, I thought it was going to be cooler than that. Uh, You know, they're not going to do that. He's hyping it up because that is the beauty of what Jesus has done. And he's about to just lay it on them. He can't hype it up too much and he doesn't make us wait in suspense. He goes right into the next verse, which we're going to do. And we see what this mystery is all about. He says in verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How amazing is that? What a privilege to be a Gentile. What a privilege to be a part of this generation. The God of all creation from everlasting to everlasting chosen his perfect timing to reveal his sovereign will to the saints at Colossae and onward, obviously, because we're, we're hearing it too. And what had been hidden for millennia. We're talking thousands of years. It's been hidden. The powerful revelation of Jesus, the Christ, the hope of glory now lives in you and in you and in us. For those who have repented of our sins, confess Jesus as Lord and follow after him, he lives in us. That is amazing. But wait, there's more. I mean, think back to what I said about this uh, being specifically for us as Gentiles and how there there was serious differentiation there between Jew and Gentile. That's a big part of this reveal to the Colossians. That's what they were, you know, experiencing. That's what they knew existed still. That tension, they knew it was there still. It wasn't just kind of underhanded. It was obvious. And they're hearing Paul tell them this kind of news. And I'm going to tell you, that is huge for them. That was the big reveal to the Colossians. Paul is telling them, hey, you know that line of differentiation? Not anymore. That's one of the great things about this mystery of Jesus living in us as Gentiles. We are now one in Jesus. You can write down or you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. I'm probably going to read through verse 9 here. But Ephesians 3, 6 through 9. So this is the letter to the Ephesians. Keep that in mind as I'm reading it, because you're going to hear a lot of the same things that are just Paul's just said to the church of Colossae. So here we go. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, 
Though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. There's that hype again. Who created all things? So he pretty much tells the Ephesians the same thing that he tells, tells the church of Colossae. But that's what we're trying to, that's what I'm trying to get you to understand. This was a message that the Gentiles needed to hear because that line that was there, that difference, that feeling second class or other than, it was there, it was real. And Paul is saying, hey, let that go. In Jesus, we are joint heirs. We are fellow heirs. We are created together, built up together in Jesus through his gospel. This is a powerful message for us to comprehend. And it's one that the early church really had to wrestle with in a way that we don't really understand much anymore. And, and you know, thankfully so. A message of, of the gospel continue to spread beyond the cultural and physical borders of the Jew. Salvation was to the Jew first. I mean, Romans 1.16 tells us that. Well, that's not, you know, don't hear me saying something I'm not. Salvation was to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. And now that salvation has come, there is no distinction between the two. But we are all one in Jesus. Romans, 12 verse, uh, Romans 10, verse 12. So Romans 10, verse 12. I'll take a second. Romans 10, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. How glorious is this news? How wonderful is this hope? Let us praise God with Romans chapter 11, verse 33. So write that one down. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? Inscrutable just means uh, unfathomable, like you can't measure it. So how deep are the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God? When we see stuff like this, when the Lord shows us things like this, of how he has brought all things together in Jesus and that's where we find our unity. That's where we find our community. That's where we find our hope is in Jesus. Glory to his name. All right, one final thought on verse 27. The hope of glory is Jesus in us. So the hope of glory equals, based on this verse, the hope of glory equals Jesus in us. Not near us or beside us, but in us in us. We talk about abiding in him, but the huge part of our abiding in him is Jesus abiding in us. We cannot abide in him if he does not first abide in us. Much like how, you know, the only way we can love him is because he first loved us. That's first John four nineteen. If you want to write that one down, we love him because he first loved us. Well, we abide in him because he abides in us. We can't abide in him without him abiding in us. And that is amazing. All right, verse 28 and 29. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I'm going to skim these last two verses just because of time, not because they are not treasures in and of themselves. I want you to dive deeper into them on your own. Mine these treasures out on your own. I'll be happy to help you. Actually, even if you're you're still like, wondering like how do you know how do I mine these treasures how do I use a concordance how do I you know uh, look up other verses and, and everything's like that I'd be happy to help you and I know Kevin and David would too and there are other folks here that'd be happy to show you so don't hesitate like don't feel like well I don't know how to do that so I'm just not going to um, please step out ask somebody because um, that it's rich it's rich when you do that the Holy Spirit will teach you things that'll just blow your mind but all right, so we're skimming these. I just want you to see real quick. Paul is is using a very broad brush in these last two verses. I mean, he's painting with a very broad brush. Everyone. He uses everyone three times in that sentence, in that one sentence there. It's to make sure that we understand this word of hope and glory in Jesus and Jesus in us, not for just the apostles to talk about what it's like. Hey, tell us what it's like to have that. It's, that's not what it is. It's not for just the early church to get Jesus's kingdom off the ground. Hey, we got to, you know, Jesus has got to be in us for, you know, to kind of get this thing rolling because it's got to go global and we need a lot of help to just to get it off the ground. No, we are all, everyone called to be mature in Christ Jesus. We are all called to be Christ, Christians, little Christ, meaning walking like him, talking like him, doing the things he did enduring the sufferings like him, completing what is lacking in the Great Commission. There's that completing what is lacking and being raised to glory with him at the last day. And all of that only in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. But the beautiful thing is, all we have to do is ask. He gives us that strength and power in the Holy Spirit if we surrender, it is all about Jesus. If there's nothing else you got from this message today, it is all about Jesus. And this is just another way to say it. Another way to see it. As we saw Paul's interaction with the church of Colossae here and him giving them this amazing, mind blowing news that the hope of our glory is Jesus in us. And that we can suffer for his namesake and rejoice. We can work with him in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And we can share in that glory because of the hope of that glory that he's put within us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.